Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Okay, hello, it's um, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Today, I'm talking to Adam Fisher, who is a a nuclear material scientist. I know you've um, been studying this for many years, haven't you, Adam? Yeah, many years, nearly five years now. That's part of my PhD. Right. And you've actually been out to um, the Chernobyl site working on decommissioning the material that's been left after that disaster. Yeah, well... um, we kind of did we, i never actually worked at the chernobyl site but we've been there for a look around and we uh, um did some laboratory uh with some laboratory studies based on the meltdown at uh, chernobyl so yeah we uh we investigated uh, the composition and the uh, durability of that lava like material that was formed in the uh, disaster right because that is that's one of the things then oh I'm, i misunderstood on that then i know i've looked into i mean we, we've all got a basic well, most of us have a basic understanding of what went on at the time of, of that disaster in 1986. You're quite young. Were you actually, I don't know what age you were when it happened, but what, yeah, I think, what, how, how did you become interested in all of this? Uh, well, I was like five months, I think, when the disaster happened. But it was only relatively recently in my undergraduate degree, there was a nuclear uh, physics lecture and it was talking about nuclear uh, energy nuclear fuel nuclear science and they talked about Chernobyl and I was I was kind of drawn by mm-hmm. by it all it was uh, the disaster was, was something else really and just read a few books around the subject and uh yeah initially when I started the uh, PhD we, we had nothing to do with with Chernobyl or anything it was just um, by chance that we were able to work on it so it's was, it was quite lucky in a way because it's something that um, I understand that you can actually go even as a tourist now, but mainly tourists. Some people will go and take a tour around. Um, it's other tourists or scientists, but I wouldn't have thought it was particularly safe to go there on a on a general tour. Um, well, people have been going there for quite a few years before the Chernobyl series. Since then, it's kind of skyrocketed. The amount of tourists that go there now is just increased tenfold but you, you have to go as, as an organized tour uh, really official tours you have to take your passports as checkpoints and um yeah it's really popular but it's uh it's relatively safe now um you can't stay there for too long um i mean people it's an active uh, working site so people are working there all the time i think they work there on site for like two months max and then they need to to go back home leave the area they've mm. received like the year's worth of dose but as a tourist if you're there for a couple of days um it's relatively fine we stayed in the hotel there that's specially designed for tourists and people who work there which is not near the, the nuclear reactor it's uh maybe 10 kilometers away but it's uh, yeah. Yeah, relatively safe so i understand then that although we talk about it as having been chernobyl chernobyl is about 10 kilometers away from the site isn't it and it was um i may not be pronouncing this right it was Pripyat is it Pripyat where the yep. site was? Mm-hmm. Yep. And the yeah, Yeah. And the the accommodation blocks that that you that you see, and presumably the site that the area that you can tour around, all the accommodation there was built for workers at the site itself. I understand. Yeah. Well, um, Pripyat was built 
to serve the nuclear power plant. It was like one of these um, Atomgrad towns, uh, the town that served the nuclear energy purpose. So that was uh, only established in 1970. They actually started work on the nuclear reactors before there was any town whatsoever. So the original workers were staying in port cabins for a good few years before the, the, the town was built around it to serve, uh, to serve the power plant. So it was a brand new town. Uh, Pripyat, it was kind of state of the art for the Soviet times, but you know, a lot of people who were worked in nuclear energy, they wanted to work at Chernobyl nuclear reactor because it was like this little beacon of progress in the deteriorating Soviet state towards the late 80s. So it was, it was yes, yeah, it's a remarkably fresh town. And I understand that since the disaster, um, a lot of the area has been overgrown with um, forest and, uh, veg- and vegetation. Yep, it's pretty much completely being reclaimed by nature again. Um, one of the most striking things I saw was like the athletic stadium and the football football ground. So we was we was walking into it, and the guy said, "You you stood in the center of the football pitch, and you just got trees that are just stretched so high, and then you can just make out the um, the grandstand in the background and the running track that's just there, and it's just completely being reclaimed, pretty much. And I've got like these. Yeah. Sorry." I, I did. I did read that um, it had never actually been used. It was brand spanking new, and they they didn't actually. I don't know if that's true or not. That they'd never actually used it. I don't think they did. No. I mean, there was a couple of football pitches, but this this main one that the uh, they created this athletics tracks was you know, never used. Mm. Right. Okay. So nuclear energy. Then that's the question because at that point in time, it was very popular, and we thought it was the way forward. I'd like to mm-hmm. know what your opinion is on that now. After that, I mean, people have become really worried, haven't they, about the safety of it all? Yeah, I mean, I mean, in terms of the Soviet Union, um, they needed to produce a lot of energy for the rest of the satellite states, and the only way they could actually do that was from nuclear power. That was the only form of energy that could satisfy the demands, really. So they built these whopping, huge, great, massive reactors, um, which were very they were very unstable and it was just too big to control really and it resulted in obviously the Chernobyl disaster in the UK so much we 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 didn't build the reactors as big around the 70s and the 80s um so a lot a lot safer but in terms of like in the 90s it was a dry period and we took our foot off the gas with nuclear we didn't really know what to do there's a lot of public hostility around that period and post Chernobyl obviously but in terms of the future, when we see that climate change is really having a big impact at the minute, nuclear could be the uh, the best of available options. Um, in terms of going forward for nuclear, a lot of the new reactors that are planned are really small scale reactors. They're not these great big whopping reactors we see on the coast of the UK. Um, and those are a lot more safer than bigger reactors in a nutshell, pretty much so. In the mean, in the kind of interim period before kind of renewables really take hold, these reactors will likely serve a serve a decent purpose within the next fifty years. I would have thought. I understand that the reactors that were that were involved were is it RBMK reactors that were involved in the disaster. But I read that um, Russia still of last year, Russia still had eleven operational of the same the same type of reactor. Yeah, they do. I mean, they've been severely modified, com- completely reworked from what they, they were um, when they were built in the 70s and 80s. Um, yeah, th- these reactors, 
Um, we're in Lithuania as well, and one of the conditions for Lithuania joining the EU was to just stop these reactors completely, uh, which they did. Um, but these reactors, if, if you look back now, they were just so, they had no shielding. So literally that lid that blew off in the Chernobyl reactor, there was no containment there. So that was just expelled into the atmosphere. It, it, at the same time in the West, the, all our reactors were contained within a really thick steel vessel. So that it wouldn't have happened in the same, um, the disaster wouldn't have been as bad if they had that containment vessel there. Mm. But they had, they didn't have that vessel there because these, as I said before, these were whopping great big reactors, and you just, you just physically couldn't build a steel um, vessel large enough. And one of the reasons they built the, the big reactors was uh, twofold purpose: was to generate energy and to get plutonium for weapons program. The bigger reactor you have, the more plutonium you can have, and the more weapons you can make essentially. So if there wasn't really that drive, that dual drive, maybe these reactors weren't built as big. I mean, we didn't build anything as big as that in the West, but uh, we were a little bit more cautious, I would, have, I would have thought. Thankfully, yes. Thankfully, under the circumstances. And I understand now that the um, reactor that caused all the problems is that they, they eventually did put a big shield around it, but not particularly effective. From looking at the photographs, it's not that solid in places. No, that's why they've got this new... Um, the world's largest movable structure, um, the containment shield, I can't remember its name exactly. I don't know if you've seen this big whopping structure that can uh, like go essentially as big as Wembley Stadium, if not bigger, that can go over the original structure that was built to contain the reactor in, in 1986. Mm. But in, in fact, that uh, that shield they built in, 19, in the 1980s was, was remarkably good under the circumstances. It was essentially big, like, port cabin size blocks that were had to be moved in by crane you, you couldn't get people close to it so the, they actually did a really good job in, in building that um original structure containment structure but that only had a, like a, a 30 year life i think mm. they knew it would only last 30 years because there's a lot of cracks in there you couldn't really it, it was impossible to build a sound structure so it's done its job um and now they've put this containment uh, shield on there, which will, should last for a hundred years. But the the problem was was that structure that was that the original structure that was there for thirty years. It started to deteriorate, and some of it was falling in into the reactor and kicking up a lot of dust. So mm. it was as soon as that happened, I think it happened about ten years ago. They they really wanted to build this super huge structure to really contain it for the next hundred years, while they'll start to to kind of um, deconstruct the destroyed reactor and the containing buildings that's underneath that huge structure which will probably last another 100 200 years who knows it's a, it's a lot of money to, to to deal with this issue it is but um they they don't think it's going to be safe i can't remember i've written it down here somewhere how many years before they actually twenty thousand years before the surrounding area is likely to be not to be contaminated yeah yeah that's right i mean because what they did in that area um that kind of relates to like growing vegetables and people living there because all the, the, the con all the radionuclides are beneath the surface. Um, so growing vegetables there, everything will just be contaminated. So you can't actually live, uh, the ground couldn't sustain a population living there. Um, but there are people living there now. A lot of people have resettled there. A lot of the older generation, um, about maybe 500,000 people have gone back to that land to live there. And they, I think they grow things in their own little, plots and stuff but mm. 80, 80 years old a lot of these people so the government have just kind of allowed them to do that 
in spite of the inherent risks then that they're going to face from it that they've decided to go back yeah a lot of these people are quite old stubborn from the old soviet states so it's their land it's what they mm. yeah i understand as well though that um in in the exclusion zone that the wildlife had really uh, flourished particularly after humans <laughs> after humans left um wildlife yeah. i think it's lynx elk wolves um yeah they're, they're in the area apparently um they've been te- some must have been tested and that that they are radioactive but they seem to be surviving okay <laughs> yeah i mean i'm sure they will have a, a degree of well a larger degree of radioactivity than involved outside the area but when we stayed in the hotel in Chernobyl, we actually heard them on an evening um i never heard anything like it before Just oh the wolves, wolves was it yeah yeah it was yeah they were what they they not i can't i can't describe the sound but the, the howling the howling the wolves mm. yeah yeah it was an incredible and they have a lot of dogs there and it was really strange because you'll you go in um in a coach around the, the various sites and you'll get off at one site which might be a, a, a kindergarten or a, a factory and there'll be some dogs that will just come up to you these are completely wild dogs but they see these humans and they follow you around for a bit of company and they'll follow you for like half an hour of looking around that site and then you'll get back on the coach and then they'll just sit down by the side of the road and then wait for the next tourist group to come along for that little bit of company there's lots of puppies as well outside the the reactor when they're in the in the in the, the mum there as well. I mean, just these tiny puppies, but they're just they're everywhere. It's quite striking, really. Mm. So no evidence then. I mean, the sort of thing that you expect that that there is going to be a problem is that um, they're going to be deformities and things like that, um, which was one of the things that were, people were worried about, weren't they, in the aftermath? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Um, there's been lots of studies on the deformities in trees and the leaves don't grow as well, but it's kind of to be expected that it suffered a lot of uh, radiation as it landed in that area, hence it's mm. like an exclusion zone. Um, and but the back, when you're there, the background radiation just within that um, 30 kilometer exclusion zone is, is about three times background from, say, London. So it's not necessarily that much higher. Three times is relatively nothing in the grand scheme of things. Uh, back in the 80s it would have been thousands thousands of times the background so over time it gradually decreases but the problem is like the contamination beneath the soil that's why you can't live there you can't grow vegetables or anything so, so what so what is it then as a, a lay person here i mean i can remember i did study science at school but it's such a long time ago for me um half-lives and isotopes and various things like that that i can mm. remember learning about but what is it then that is actually contaminating if it's underground what is it that's contaminating the soil uh, so it's it's in the nuclear reactor if you, the uranium fuel um you put the uranium fuel in there and essentially you can hold this fuel in your hand it's not necessarily radioactive but as soon as it goes into the reactor to create the heat to boil the water to create the electricity it splits it splits up physical disintegration of this large uranium atom goes into two smaller atoms and these two smaller atoms are very unstable they're very radioactive you don't really these don't exist in nature they're created within that nuclear reactor so when the chernobyl incident happened all this material was blown into the air and it settled on the surface so these little atoms they're just just everywhere like imagine it as being like dust like radioactive dust so these go into the ground um 
what happens like a human comes into contact with them um so initially you, you could breathe that in or just it could land on your skin or it'll go into the veg into some vegetables and you could eat that vegetables but what's causing the damage is that these are radioactive which means they're unstable which means they decay to a, a more stable atom in the process it kind of uh, releases some energy it's like a really microscopic bullet so imagine that bullet goes through, it can penetrate the skin and it goes into your, your your cells and your dna and it kind of rips apart your dna so your dna really doesn't know what it's doing it doesn't know how to 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 reproduce or create a new cell or so it kind of mutates and that's what causes the cancers it's these little bullets that are coming from these radioactive particles that are kind of ripping your dna to pieces essentially um, and that's what causes the damage I hope that kind of that that explains, explains certainly what it what it does. But I'm just curious to know what is in you know what is it that's if there's well this might be a stupid question but if on the the surface you're not seeing a huge amount of external radiation now compared to what there was originally, what is it that's in the soil then? How, how is there more in the is there more in the soil? Yeah, uh, because one of the of the cleanup strategies was all these uh, a lot of the Soviet army came in and all the topsoil where you had the majority of the fallout, they just turned it over and they buried it within like a couple of feet of oh, the ground okay. for a whole area. So you're talking like, I don't know if it was the inner perimeter or the outer perimeter. Either way, it was a huge, huge area. Nearly, I think it was uh, half a million soldiers did this mm. so all all the radioactivity w within that localized region is under the ground now so if you wanted to plant something in there um some vegetation is quite um it, it absorbs a lot of this the, these two uh radioactive atoms uh the, the strontium and the cesium that can actually be incorporated into the the vegetation and then be reproduced in the vegetables and the, the apples you eat so that's you'd be receiving quite not a big dose but you, you wouldn't want to eat all these apples every day mm. um, and that, that's where the, the problem lies really right. it's all in the ground on the top surface is a little bit but they literally turned it over so full villages were flattened one of the striking thing that i noticed when we was was driving through there through the 30 kilometer exclusion zone you see no sign of like human life or animal life so there's no fences there's no buildings there's no hedges it just looks like this it's not forest it's just like empty fields but it doesn't feel so like the fallow fields or anything it's just just a dead landscape really i mean there's vegetation growing there but there's just no signs of life and that was quite eerie because obviously it's 30 kilometers and there's it's a hell of a large region where things were just flattened and all that soil was upturned and, mm. and all the villages were buried so they dug huge pits and just flattened all the buildings and and everything so it's yeah completely changed quite eerie i would imagine yeah mm. yeah really eerie and there's a lot of electricity pylons that just some of them have just toppled over and it's just yeah it's just like a dead world like the apocalypse and mm. one of a better word really so in in that area itself then there's not a great deal growing is there not there's not the forestation that you've got further out i mean yeah yeah that, that it grows mm. grows quite quite well but it's just not cultivated in any, in any mm. sense it's just quite wild like uh the, yeah forest weeds just, yeah it's overgrown mm -hmm. especially in Pripyat the, the town which has just completely been reclaimed mm. no um would you go back again 
Yeah, I definitely do want to go back there. Um, I don't know why we have this dark fascination of going to, to see this place. I have um, a Ukrainian friend and she just doesn't understand why people want to go and see this. Why people are interested. Mm. Yeah, she says it's like a, disrespectful in a, in a sense and I can understand that completely. Um, but I don't know, I, I, I just think it just it's, it's maybe a good, good warning sign and a good sobering thought so that you actually realise that the the consequences of something really bad happening and just to, I don't know to straighten your thoughts out a bit more I think yes yes I think at a time like this really when we're facing a different threat um, with the pandemic that's on at present um, harping back to something that happened was it th- about 30 years ago isn't it more than yeah yeah 86 it was 86 well it is yes that's the year my eldest son was born so he's 33 so um yes it's uh do, do you think we've learned anything from it do you think we're a lot more even even the remaining nuclear um reactors that are in place do you think that even in russia are they is is it much better organized now yeah i think the main problem with that was a, it was a completely unstable ineffective design there was no like I said, there was no containment vessel but again, we had the disaster in 2011, the Fukushima disaster, mm. where a similar incident happened. And it was kind of a completely different situation there, um, which we didn't really learn anything from. Um, from like, So the, the disaster in Fukushima was caused by a tsunami, and they didn't anticipate how big these tsunamis could actually, uh, the height of the waves that they could get to. So they had the defences, the tsunami defences around the reactor, which should have offered protection against these kind of situations, but they were too small. The tsunami completely engulfed the, the protection walls and it knocked out the backup generators for the Fukushima disaster. So even though what Chernobyl told us was to like really, really enhance the safety culture in terms of this, it kind of didn't in that respect for, for the Japanese. Mm. These these the defenses the tsunami defenses were way too small and they knew about that because it's interesting because the ancients had these tsunami stones that were perched upon the hillside above the reactor saying that the tsunamis can reach this height and, it, and from that position you can look down and see the reactor there and it's like well if the tsunami does come up this this high these reactors will be completely engulfed completely swamped unfortunately that did happen so did people learn from the ancients i don't know so they 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 took no they took no notice of the um and disregarded that fact then did they that it could get that high i think they were aware of it and then they put in the tsunami barriers there but the the tsunami barriers weren't weren't big enough ultimately Mm. um and they should have been should have been higher and again um in in fukushima it knocked out the emergency uh, diesel generators those diesel generators were beneath ground level so obviously the, the sea just completely went in completely wiped those out if they were built at a higher location then that wouldn't have happened mm. these would have kicked in and the, would have kept the reactor in a, in a stable state so again you can say no they didn't, they didn't learn anything mm. from, from chernobyl because obviously it weren't acted upon so what do we have then as I say, I really don't know a great deal about it, but what do we have in this country then to protect around our 
our nuclear reactors? Um, I'm unsure really, because I don't I don't have too much to deal to to do with like reactor technology. My hmm. specialty is the nuclear waste, but we we kind of learn each step along the way. So we have like um, passive systems, passive. Uh, safety system so if power does get wiped out we don't actually need any power to stop our reactors um as opposed to like the, what the the japanese did they needed those backup diesel generators but i think this was only brought into force post fukushima so it's only uh, a recent development our reactors obviously are a lot smaller than um, than the ones in the soviet union and we have we definitely have the containment vessels so if it mm. does happen but just just ever since chernobyl in the uk and in in the west um a lot of the safety features have really been ramped up. Um, yes. Well, that's reassuring anyway for mm. us. Um, just interested to know then, Adam, your, part of your, well, your speciality is actually dealing, as you say, with the waste that's, that was produced. What, mm-hmm. what, will they do? what will they do with it? Well, ultimately, the government wants to bury it uh, underground, deep underground, maybe 500 metres to a kilometre underground, in a specialised, uh, it's called a geological geological disposal facility. So this is like a super high-tech hole in the ground, pretty much. It's not just like a, you know, dig a hole, throw it in, leave it. Mm. It's a fully engineered facility with, uh, I think the, 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 the footprint underground is like maybe four by four kilometres, the amount of waste we need to put down there. So it'll be hugely complex. And like I said, I think it'll be like... Um, trains and delivering all the, the packages beneath the ground um, that is the internationally agreed approach to disposing of nuclear waste um, we don't have a site as yet um, it's based on a volunteer approach so we want uh, local councils communities to to volunteer a site basically um, mm. but i kind of they want it to be done by 2040 was the original plan but it might be extended that's about 2018 before we actually start putting nuclear waste under the ground. Who's going to pay for it? Oh, it's the, the taxpayer. It's uh, the taxpayer. What, over there? Pay for this. No, in, in the UK. I think, I think in different countries, um, nuclear producers have to pay uh, a little bit of contribution towards their disposal facilities but in the uk i think it's a taxpayer i'm not i'm not too sure oh, is this, this is for our for disposing of what we've got here our own yeah nuclear for waste. Our own waste. yeah that's yeah. fair enough i was no i'd i'd jumped i'd jumped completely to thinking who's going to pay presumably they're going to are, are they well i'm presuming are they going to do that with the waste at chernobyl yeah i think they do have plans as well for that um Every country that has nuclear waste will have agreed that they will bury it in these underground engineered facilities. Um, a lot of nations, a few nations are more advanced. The Swedish and the Finnish have actually started building these things. Mm. Um, and a lot of people don't even have plans as yet. They just, say, they just agree that they will dispose it underground. But like I said, there's nothing being put on paper yet. No, dispose of um, it responsibly, especially if, if the actual production of energy that way is going to... Um, increase then there has to be something in place doesn't there yeah mm. and a lot of the waste that's challenging now is like the legacy waste that was built from the very early days of the nuclear energy and even the nuclear weapons program that's still a bit still a big issue and new nuclear waste will be a lot the quantities that will be produced will be a lot smaller so 
think people sometimes need to distinguish the two from the old nuclear, the early days, and, and new nuclear. Um, and I think once we tackle the old problems, all the legacy waste, then mm. the new nuclear stuff is just will be like marginal. How long have we actually been doing this? Then how long have we been producing nuclear uh, since, nuclear waste, basically from energy or whatever? Since the late fifties, um, right in the UK. The first nuclear reactors in the UK were just built solely to produce plutonium for the weapons program. And that produced a lot of waste that we're still actually dealing with now. Because back then, um, the drive was to produce, produce plutonium at all costs. And the scientists were saying, we'll have a, a big waste issue here. But the government was uh, just so dr- driving so fast to, to create this weapon. We didn't really know. The scientists didn't know what to do with the waste. They said, look, we've got all this waste. So it ended up just being stored safely, just in like... Um, cooling ponds and some of that waste is still there now since 1957 it's still there and this is what we need to deal with now and dispose of first um so where so whereabouts then near where it was produced yeah it's on sellafield mm. yeah in fact um those two reactors um the wind scale piles they were called um there was a nuclear incident in the uk we had a, a nuclear disaster but it wasn't really a disaster because we 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 managed to to contain the the, the, the there was a fire in one of the reactors. Mm. We managed to put filters on the top. It was only a last minute choice to put these filters on the top of our reactor. If we didn't have those filters there, we would have had a mini Chernobyl on our hands. We would have had a lot of uh, contaminated land in Cumbria. But we we put these filters on there. We managed to to, to save the day essentially. But that reactor was stopped. The fire there, the fire was put out. The fuel is still in that reactor now from 1957. It hasn't been touched. It's it's incredible, really, to think that we need to go in there, retrieve that fuel, mm. dispose of it safely. So we're still dealing with the problems that were created from the weapons program. And it's, it's quite remarkable to think that those, it's still it's still an issue now. It's, it's a well-controlled issue. It's not... If it's nothing to concern us overly then yeah yeah it's definitely not but it's yeah it's, it's interesting it's why i kind of got involved in nuclear energy and everything because these issues just mm. have that historical legacy and it's yeah it's, yeah it's interesting for me yes it's um well I, as i say it, it's it's interesting it's quite fascinating really when you learn more about it i'm sure you go into it in great depth with what you're doing i would imagine then that there's going to be plenty of um, plenty of work and employment for you going on into the future because this is going to happen. This is going to need need being um, resolved, isn't it? Over a, a period of time, it's going to it's not going to be a five minute job, is it? No, no. In fact, if we if we just decided to switch off all the nuclear reactors now, there is enough work for two to, to, for people for the next two hundred years time, and we still don't have the the numbers to actually take up these positions mm. so the phd i've done has been heavily funded by by the government because we don't have the expertise or the knowledge to, to actually tackle these problems so there's a big drive to get everyone skilled trained up so it's, mm. yeah, it's quite a big big community now um, so compa- yeah, comparatively speaking then from what you were saying it's not our current production then that's causing the problem and this is all legacy from way back yeah yeah pretty much pretty much from um and that's not just isolated to the UK. That's that's every mm. every nuclear Globally. generating mm. step. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of back in like nuclear waste was like an afterthought. It was they had this uh, mentality of leaving it for the next generation. 
because we're too busy now. We can't really deal with it. Well, science will solve the problems in the next 10, 20 years, but nothing ever has. The money's never really been there to tackle these problems. So because of that, a lot of these storage conditions, some of them are deteriorating. Um, I mean, it's controlled, but it's they're still deteriorating. The waste needs to be removed and then um, transformed, conditioned, put into a nice stable form. And that's what Sellafield's mainly doing now. It's taking all a lot of waste, which is like in, in big like farm silos essentially mm. a lot of the waste are in these farm silos and they're taking the waste out of there treating it either encapsulate it into cement or turning some of it into like glass and, and storing it safely uh, ready to be disposed of in this geological disposal facility so yeah that, that's the, one of the well that's i think that's the most pressing issue at the Sellafield site at the minute mm. and where, where the majority yeah. of our nuclear waste is so where is the is the storage facility going to be? It's going to be there at Sellafield, is it? The, the geological disposal facility, the one underground, well, we, we don't know yet. Oh, um, it's okay. based upon um, a volunteer approach. So a county council can say um, we, we'll host one. And there'll be, there's incentives there, um, mm. monetary incentives. So a couple have come forward, um, a couple in Cumbria, and I think an, a place in Kent, a community in Kent was willing to host this, but the likelihood is that it should be relatively close to where all that waste is because you've got transport issues yes. and structure can't cope with the demands. Um, so, but not anyone can, can mm. come up with that. No, uh, well, can volunteer to host it. I guess it's not going to be a particularly popular thing to um, present to an area, but a lot of people will go, well, we don't really want it in our backyard. No, that's right. But interestingly enough in Sweden, there was a, uh, two communities who really wanted it and the one that lost out actually uh, actually got more money in the end because they felt as though they should have had it because there's a lot of there's a lot of incentive to have it there's a lot of jobs that will be created um a lot of money for the community to develop i don't know that can be put back into the community for the roads for like leisure facilities and it's just basically how how much you're willing to pay people i mean i think in Hungary, when they did it, the money that they were offering their community was staggeringly a lot more compared to what we were offering in the UK. Mm. Um, so there is an incentive to have it. There's a lot of jobs. and that, Well, that's what the main issue with the, the, the radioactive waste management, the, the government organisation that I tackled with like, delivering this facility. It's about um, kind of advertising it to a community mm. because there's a lot of benefits it can bring. This waste has to go somewhere and... I always wonder, what if no community comes forward? What are we going to do with this waste? Will, the, will there be a second plan B, like a top-down scenario saying, you know, you guys, it needs to go somewhere, it's going here. That'll never happen. But we, we, we just don't know. Someone has to come forward eventually. And I think someone will. There are a couple of communities that are quite interested, but but we don't know. There's always someone, there'll be some organisation that will mm. want one thing. Well, I think when you can... I suppose you can't 100% guarantee it, but when you can reassure them that it's not going to be a risk factor, um, can you, I mean, can you guarantee? Well, so, so that's what basically my PhD is, is, was, was looking at. Um, we want to understand the performance of these waste materials stretching over hundreds of thousands to millions of years mm. because the whole idea of, of, of burying it underground is to keep all that radioactive waste isolated from the geosphere and the biosphere for, well, indefinitely basically mm. but over time these waste packages they will dissolve 
we so we turn a lot of the waste into glass and there's a lot of cemented waste and they do dissolve and when they dissolve all these radionuclides which I talked about before the cesium the strontium might possibly migrate back up to the surface but it's buried should be buried 500 meters a kilometer underground and so i mean what i like to think about the phd is it's what we do in the research community is like necessary overkill just to provide the assurances that it will be stable for for this time period mm. it's completely isolated uh, and that's what we've we've got to do but i always like to think after this COVID 19 how our how our uh, perceptions will change towards these kind of things because you know like i said it's, it's necessary overkill it's like we as scientists can understand that this will be safe for a, a long well indefinitely but to someone in the public who's not well informed about these issues it, it's quite concerning and if i didn't know anything about it i'd be quite concerned if you were going to dump a lot of nuclear waste mm. beneath beneath my garden i'll be concerned obviously but it's how do we communicate the, the risk and the negligible impact it will have this sports mm. facility it's quite it's tricky it's a problem so how but, could if if anyone then wanted to find out more about it is there something i mean i always put show notes up after the interview is there anything in particular that you would recommend that people could a lay person yeah. could read up i mean obviously yeah. there's plenty of specialist um yeah for sure productions um, but yeah so the organisation Radioactive Waste Management, if anyone wants to Google RWM UK, they have this really great uh, website that can answer any questions people ask. And there's a lot of videos there, a lot of documents, and then they can forward you to like the really high-level high science documents as well for them mm. to check. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good resource. What um, does that stand for? That. Radioactive Waste Management. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a subsidiary of the Nuclear Decommission Authority of the UK. Mm, so, it, so yeah, they just focus in on the delivery of the, the geological disposal facility. Mm, because that's something that I've realised that with recent events here, that there can be a lot of, well, a, a lot of news and a lot of misinformation, which is I yep, think, yeah. which is I think what panics people generally, isn't it? And that's not mm-hmm. that's something that you you want to be as educated as possible, but correctly educated because you can read a lot, you can read a lot around subjects and it can Mm -hmm. be the wrong information. And that is what will panic people. Yeah, for sure. Mm. And it does, especially today with the COVID-19 people, Mm. everyone's panicked in some way or other. Mm. It's the same with, but yeah, I'd like to see how people's opinions change towards uh, like climate change and nuclear power after this, 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 this pandemic i think it's made a big i think the obvious benefits to the planet itself from humans taking two steps back and not being there and not doing what we normally do it's start Mm -hmm. it's showing already what a difference it will make it it could make if we i mean we don't want, want to live like this forever but um to be more responsible in what we do yeah, exactly. Uh, I hope people do learn because there's a lot of people that dismiss climate change just like that. It's not interested. It doesn't affect them. Mm. And you see some people even now today, some, it's a very few fraction, fraction of the population say that the COVID-19 doesn't affect them. But it's, yeah, the, we realise how fragile we are, basically. Mm. Um, and what I can't remember that quote that someone said, we're only three days away from anarchy and 
society could just break down completely. Mm. We've had a taste of that now, so I think we've all, we'll all learn. Yes, yes. And hopefully we'll come out the other side. Um, can't hesitate to say better for it. I'd like to think it would be better for it, you know, that um, obviously some people won't, and mm. that is a big worry. But those of us, us who survive, I think I would hope that it for me certainly readdresses my priorities yeah certainly Definitely. Yeah, for me for sure yeah. mm. anyway this has been this has been lovely this has been lovely having this chat um it was a, a very fortuitous really that we sat next to each other on a plane last year in yep. september didn't we and we met then which is how i got to know you um yep, i haven't seen was. you since except on zoom but um, it was a, a very fortunate meeting on, when I was on my yep. way to Latvia. So, um, and we discussed things then. So interesting um, person to, to travel with, definitely, to be sat next to uh, you. <laughs> so thank you, very, uh, thank you very much, Adam. And thanks for agreeing to do this. No, no problem. I've enjoyed it and I hope other people do as well. Okay. Right. So this is Susan signing out now from Inside Yorkshire. Thank you.